We read the Word of God this evening in the third epistle of John. Third John. And we'll draw attention to verses 5 through 8, to which we'll pay a special attention as we read the epistle. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now our text. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself, yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee, but I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee, our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. This far we read the Word of God. Perhaps you remember, beloved, from several weeks ago when I preached on verses 3 and 4 that John writes the epistle to Gaius to encourage him. He is a godly man, but in the church of which he's a part is an ungodly man Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence. And it seems that that ungodly man in the church has more influence, has a greater following, that sin gets rewarded, at least with outward recognition, and godliness doesn't. And in light of that, the Apostle John writes to Gaius. And he says, first of all to Gaius, you've been walking in truth, We all know that, and God be praised, and I have no greater joy than to hear that. In the second place, he says to Gaius, and now in our text, you've been doing well. You've been doing well in showing charity to others, and in this you are a fellow helper to the truth. The last part of the text, verse 8, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth is as much as saying, let us be like Gaius, because he was a fellow helper to the truth. The third place we're going to come later, if the Lord wills, to Diotrephes, that ungodly man. 
He also was in the church and he also stood in a certain relation to truth, but it was not the relation of love. It was not the relation of promoting truth. It was that of hatred for truth. It was that of wanting to hide truth and to live and promote a life that does not accord with truth. And then finally there is Demetrius, who hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself, probably the man who is bringing the epistle from John to Gaius, and of whom John also speaks words of commendation. Now as we read the epistle about three men in the church, did it strike you again what the central concept is? Truth. Walking in truth. Fellow helper to truth. A good report of truth. Three men in the church. But in the church on earth, there are ungodly men as well as godly. There are unbelievers as well as believers. Three men in the church in relation to truth. The question for us this evening is, and are we like Gaius? First of all, he walked in truth. That was last week's or last time's sermon. Do you remember that walking in truth ultimately meant that the light of the revelation of God shone in his life and on his pathway and he consciously walked in it? John, in his first epistle, relates light and truth and the lie and darkness. This Gaius wasn't interested in darkness. He didn't love darkness. He didn't wander into the shadows of truth where it got a little murkier and see, can I live here? He didn't say, I'm going to go into the realm of darkness where the world is and see if I can live with them. He walked in truth right in the very center of that spot where, as it were, the revelation of God shone on his life. Do you? Does the truth of the Word of God fashion, form, and shape your life and mine? And does it do that not just outwardly, but in our purposes, in our motives, in our heart? Then to such, says the Holy Spirit, you also have been a fellow helper to truth. And there Gaius again is set forth as our example. I call your attention to the text under the theme, Gaius, fellow helper to the truth. Notice first the meaning. Second, the commendation. And third, the example. In the first point, we have to do three things. I want to first of all explain the phrase fellow helper to the truth. In the second place, we've got to step back and see what the text says about truth. And then comes the big question, how is Gaius doing this? So to begin with, there's a translation question regarding the last part of verse 8, which I'm really taking as my theme, a fellow helper to the truth. In the Greek, it's very literally this, a fellow helper of truth. And the proposition of can have about 12 different meanings in the Greek language. So the question is, what does it mean here that I'm a fellow helper of truth? Many translations and commentators take one of two alternatives. Some, that truth is this thing that we are helping. Truth is the thing that's working and you and I are helping truth. Grammatically, 
that's possible. And even the idea is not inherently wrong. If you remember that elsewhere the Apostle Paul said that he was a co-laborer with God. Take that kind of language on your lips once if you're Paul and you run the risk of being accused of overstating yourself. You run the risk of of speaking as if God needs your help, but he didn't mean that in the least. And so from that viewpoint, it could be rightly explained that we are fellow helpers to truth itself. But that's one way translations and commentators take it. The other is not that we help truth, but that truth is this thing in which some are put in the service. Other men are laboring on behalf of truth, and then there's yet another group of people who are helping that man who labors on behalf of truth. That too is both grammatically and theologically possible, and the likely meaning of the text here. So, what is truth? My sermon on verses 3 and 4, I set forth four characteristics of truth. The first is that it is the un changing, objective revelation of God. It is not my opinion. It is not your opinion. It is not whose opinion do we go with when the two opinions differ. That's not truth. Truth does not lead to questions like that. Truth does not change. Humanity hates that. Humanity wants truth that changes. Humanity, fallen sinful humanity, wants truth that can be one thing for me and another thing for you and we'll all agree to disagree. But that's not God. That's not truth. Truth is the unchanging, objective revelation of God. In the second place, truth is that revelation as it centers in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Who came in the flesh. And I noted that time. That Christ being truly human. Having come in the flesh. Was really at the heart of what John is saying. In not only his third. But also his first and second epistles. That that was something that has been denied in his day. We didn't need a Christ who is human. But you and I know why we need a Christ who is human. Only a Christ who is human can die for the sins of humans. Only a Christ who is human has a human body in which he can die on the cross. Has a human soul in which he can taste the wrath of God for sin. In the third place we notice that truth is antithetical. I made that point already in the introduction when I said that Gaius walked in truth and not in the shadows or in the darkness. In the fourth place last time we noticed very carefully what it means to walk in the sphere of truth. Now when we come to truth in our text, we have to remember the first two points that I made last time. The revelation of God as it centers in Jesus Christ. And then there's something to add to that in our text, and that is very simply that this gospel, this truth, gets proclaimed. And in the text, being a fellow helper to the truth, is really a compressed way of saying, you're a fellow helper to those who preach the gospel. So that the preaching of the gospel is on the foreground here. There's a couple evidences of that. That the word truth in our text refers to the gospel as it is preached. 
Number one is the text itself in verse 7. John is speaking to Gaius about what Gaius did with regard to other men who, for his name's sake, went forth. Other men who, for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, went forth proclaiming the gospel of Christ and of God. So that's the first evidence. The second evidence is that this word fellow helpers, as it's used a number of times in the New Testament, always refers to an assistant to the preacher of the gospel. In fact, it is the word I referred to and quoted earlier from 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul says that he is a laborer together with God. And the use of the very word indicates that he doesn't view himself on a par with God, co-equal with God, but he views himself as a servant of God. Many times in Romans, in fact in Romans 6, three different times the word is used, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Jesus Christ. Verse 3, verse 9, salute Urbane, our helper in Christ. Verse 21, Timotheus, my work fellow. And there are a number of other instances where it's John, or it's Paul, or it's Peter, referring to somebody who assisted them in the preaching of the gospel. This assistant was not a preacher, but this assistant rendered valuable service to the preacher, the apostle, the missionary. So the very word itself refers to those who assist the preachers and the missionaries in the proclamation of the word. Which means that the last verse of the text Setting forth the example, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Reminds the whole church that you and I, by virtue of being believers, confessing believers, born again Christians, are those who must support the missionaries and the preachers of the gospel. Now even though the text isn't saying that we help truth, but it's saying that we help men who preach truth. There is something astounding going on here that it won't want you to overlook. Truth, ultimately, we said is Jesus Christ. And He could come and reveal Himself to you and to me in all His glory without a preacher. He could, if He wished, come and reveal Himself to you and to me without A scripture. He could come to us every day in a dream or in a vision. He could come to us for the first time in our life, in our new reborn life, in a dream or vision. Say, you're one of my children. You're my brother and sister. I died for you. He could come to us weekly in a dream or in a vision and say, remember I died for you. Keep living a godly life. But He doesn't do it that way. He takes men. Ourselves sinners. Ourselves in need of hearing the gospel and believing the gospel. Ourselves in need of that reforming power of the Spirit so that we live the gospel and walk in truth. And he says to some of those sinners, you are going to preach the gospel. And the gospel that you're going to preach, and as you preach it even, is going to be powerful. What is... The power 
of the preaching of the gospel in your life? What's your experience? That exposed to you sin hidden in your heart. That made you sorrow for sin more and more. That pointed you again and again to the fullness of your Savior's work for you. So that you could marvel at what Christ does for you and for the church everywhere. There are times when the power of the preaching of the gospel has been to take a congregation that's maybe united, uh, rather not united. There's disharmony and there's, there's a not peace and it works and it brings the congregation closer together again in peace and harmony. And there's times when the power of the preaching of the gospel is to cause one member of the congregation to love another more, to to knit it knits the congregation together in love more and more. The preaching of the gospel has a power to save. That is, to help grow in salvation. It's amazing that the Lord would use men to do this. And yet that's the reality that underlies the text. God raises up preachers and missionaries and then He raises up a church of Jesus Christ for many, many purposes, one of which is to support the work of preaching and missions and the men who do that work because though they do it with an authority, it's not in our power to do it completely and in our strength all by ourselves. This is the reality that comes out of our text. Truth is the gospel as it's proclaimed by a mere man whom God raised up to preach it. Such were these brethren who had gone forth for Christ's sake. And to them Gaius was a fellow helper. How? Well, in a general way, he supplied every need that these men had to the extent he was able. Verse 5 sets it forth generally. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. Whatsoever is an open-ended word, but the apostle's point isn't, I don't know what you're doing, so whatever it is, you're doing it well. You don't say that anyway to people. Whatever you're doing, I don't know what it is, but you're doing it well. You can only say you're doing well when you know what they're doing. So it's just a general, it encompasses all Gaius is doing. And then in verse 6 and 8, it gets specific. Verse 8 speaks of receiving such. And verse 6, of bringing them forward on their journey. Those were the things Gaius was doing as a fellow helper to truth. And to put some content to it, it goes like this. When a man goes forth, especially a missionary now, preaching the gospel, he doesn't say to those to whom he preached, now I don't have anywhere to stay tonight, and I don't have anywhere to eat tonight, so you have to feed me, and you have to house me, because I brought you the gospel, and this is the service you render. He doesn't say that to them. We do not expect those on the mission field to whom the gospel goes, at least initially, to support the missionary. The church of believers says to a man, you go on our behalf and bring it, and we will support you. That's what Gaius was doing. So that when these men went forth, and they were in the vicinity of Gaius' house, they could go to Gaius' house, and he'd have a bed for them. 
And he'd have food on the table for them. He must have been a man of some means, but that's not so much the point. Because even the poorest of God's people sometimes have given of their little. And the Lord has blessed it and multiplied it in the service of the ministry of the gospel. Think of that widow who had just a little oil and a little flour. And yet she was the one to support Elijah or Elisha. So Gaius receives them. And when they come into his house and he sees that their feet are dirty and dusty, he says, I'll wash your feet. But when he sees that there's blisters on the feet, he says, I have some salve for your feet. When he sees that the sandals are worn out, he said to them, I've got sandals for you. He was a fellow helper to the truth. And then it came time when they must leave. They couldn't stay there for an extended time. Their, their, their purpose was not a social visit with Gaius. Their purpose was to preach the gospel. And so when they went forth, Gaius said, now here's some food for the journey. And if ever you have other needs and you're in the area, come back to me. I'll take care of you. Gaius was a fellow helper to the truth. Not the preacher but a member of the body of Christ whom God raised up in order to assist the preacher so that the preacher could do his work more readily. What was there about Gaius that enabled him to do that? The answer, of course, is that he had the life of Jesus Christ in him. But it comes out in the text this way with one word, these have borne witness of thy Charity. He loved. He loved. First of all, he loved truth. He loved the cause for which these men labored. Even more, he loved God. He loved Jesus Christ. He loved that word that these men brought. And therefore, he loved the body of Jesus Christ also. Gaius had himself been dead in sins and trespasses, was a sinner in need of the blood and the power and life of Jesus Christ. That had been worked in him, and now he loved. And that is the way, at least one way, in which it becomes evident that you too and I are truly renewed by Jesus Christ. We love. That's the heart of the law. And Gaius. Loved because he knew his Savior and his Savior's love for him and what his Savior had done in redeeming him from the bondage of sin and death. Fellow helper to the truth. For being such, John commends Gaius. We're going to leave the main thought of the text a minute. It's the second point. We'll come back to it in the third. The fellow helper. But we're going to notice that there's more going on here. John commends Gaius for being such a helper. And at least five things in the text are really John saying to Gaius, Well done! In the first place, verse 5, Thou doest faithfully. Whether the point is the manner in which you're doing it, Gaius, is a faithful manner. Faithfully is an adverb speaking of the manner. 
Or whether the point is, and it could be grammatically this as well, you are faithful describing Gaius now. Either way, the point is that the Apostle is drawing attention to the faith of Gaius. For to be a faithful man or to do something faithfully is to do something out of faith. You have a true faith. And that true faith shows itself. That true faith has a standard, the law of God. That's the standard of your charity. It has an aim, the glory of God. And that, Gaius, we understand is why you are doing what you're doing, but you're doing it faithfully, out of a heart of faith. In the second place, you're doing it not just to the brethren, but to strangers. Well, that's another way in which the text is so rich and the application so rich. If one of our foreign missionaries were to come here tonight, especially, I'll say, Reverend Klein, simply because of your own past relationship with him, you might, maybe some of you, be running up to him and sharing and saying, can you come over? Can you come over tonight? We want to have you over. And you'd all maybe be disappointed if he said, no, I'm busy already. Alright, that's Reverend Klein. What about a stranger? I asked myself in preparing the sermon, are these the same men? They're brethren, yet they're strangers? Is that what's going on here? They're those who preach the gospel, but Gaius just doesn't know them? Grammatically, the answer is no. The, uh, John is speaking of two different kinds of men, both believers, no doubt. But the one have a, a, a prominent position in the church, they preach the gospel. And the others, I've, I've never met them before, they're strangers. Gaius will take care of them too. So, it's not just for the recognition and the pat on the back, so to speak. They'll even do it. To the strangers which some having entertained, the Bible says, they have entertained angels unawares. In the third place, the commendation here is that he did so by in a godly sort, whom if thou bring forward on their journey, after a godly sort, And again, sort of like that word faithfully, this is drawing attention to the way in which Gaius does this. A way worthily of God. This is the way God treats, not just each and every man, human, head for head of course now, but this is the way God treats His children. We come into into His house in love. He sends us out in His love. He sends us out knowing that we have, spiritually, we have the grace we need to fight the battle of the week ahead. After a godly sort, Gaius sent forth these men. In the, fifth, in the, in the fourth place, the apostle says, then thou shalt do well. So there is a commendation. And then finally, I can't point now to any word, but the general thought of the passage Gaius has been doing this again and again. This isn't just one group of men who say to John, by the way, when we were in such and such a city, there was Gaius, and he took care of us. But John hears this from a number of them. Some of the verbs and the verb tenses in the text bring that out in a way I can't convey it to you. Gaius is known 
to do this. The Apostle commends him for showing the love, the charity of Jesus Christ to brothers in the church of Christ. Now from that I want to make two points. And the first one of application to you and to me, we need to do this too. There is a godly commendation that we ought to be making one to another. I'm using the word commendation, not compliment. Because I'm not talking about the new dress, the new suit, the new car, anything outward about a person. I'm not even talking about just one specific thing a person did, one action of a person. I'm talking about our recognizing how different members in the church of Jesus Christ use the graces and gifts God gave them for the well-being of the whole. And going to the brother and sister and saying, I saw that. This isn't ego stroking. This isn't flattery. This is saying, the body of Jesus Christ needs each and every member. And each and every member has his or her warts, but each and every member has his or her gifts. And I see how you use your gifts for the well-being of the body, and I am profoundly moved and humbled. And I want you to know that. It is proper to commend one another in a godly way for the place and the charity others manifest in the body of Christ. Why would we do that? To encourage. Because perched on each of our shoulders and whispering in each of our ears is a little devil saying, I was nothing. Do that for. You think you are trying to look better in front of everybody? That was Diotrephes. Diotrephes knew what Gaius was doing, and Diotrephes was a quite a, of quite a different mind. He loved to have the preeminence, but verse ten, he does not receive the brethren. What Gaius did, Diotrephes did not. He forbids them that would. So there's something now immoral in Diotrephes mind about helping each other in the church of Jesus Christ. And he casts them out of the church. There is a representative of Satan. And you find them. If it isn't Satan's own demon perched on our shoulder, whispering in our ear, you find them places. So and so used his or her gifts for the good of the body of Christ. And instead of commending. We have somebody over here. Snipping about it. And trying to drag the brother down. That's one reason. Why to commend. That's a very practical reason. Why the apostle John is commending Gaius. I know what Diotrephes is saying about you. I don't believe it. But furthermore. The reason why we would commend is ultimately to praise God for His work of grace. It's not, again, to stroke the ego of the brother or sister or to flatter them. It's not to get something from them later. No, 
is simply to say this. What an amazing God we have. What an amazing Jesus Christ who dwells in this body that he raises up each other and he works in each other to display charity. I am profoundly thankful to be a member of this body of Jesus Christ. Or John DeGaius, I am very thankful to know you. Godly commendation. Do we do that? Do we do that enough? The other thing to notice in this point is that if the inspired apostle of Jesus Christ was doing this, then you and I tonight must hear the voice of our Savior doing the same thing to us. And it begins this way with the first word of the text, Beloved. Jesus Christ saying to His church, I love you. That charity that you're expressing and, and manifesting, I, it's because I love you. And Jesus Christ then does commend His church. He did to the seven churches in Revelation. And commend individual members of the church. He will again in the day of judgment. For the way in which we've showed charity and loved his law and kept it. Now, that takes a little explanation. First again, as to the need, it's because the devil says, how can Christ love you? How can Christ love me? Look at those sins. And then he uses our theology, and, and the theology he brings to us is true. Theology, of course, true doctrine. Even our best works are polluted with sin. And when our Lord commends us, he doesn't forget that. First of all, of course, he doesn't commend us for our sins. He commends us when we do well and faithfully and after a godly sort. But even when he does that, he doesn't say, I didn't even see any, word, any sin clinging to your best works. No, he knows it full well. And he says, you're beloved yet. I've covered your sin in the blood of Jesus Christ. But I saw in you is the new man that I worked in you coming to fruition and manifesting itself. You want some Bible passages that will help you understand what I'm saying about Jesus Christ commending us? Even though sin cleaves to our best works is a biblical idea. There's two passages in Matthew 25 that can do that. The first is that parable in the middle part of the chapter, verses 14 to 30, of the three servants to whom are given talents. And it isn't the last man, the man who hid his talents, who gets a commendation. What does the Lord say to the one who was given five and to the other to whom was given two, and whose talents multiplied and doubled? Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Not an ignoring of sin. Or of the need for his blood to cover our sins. But a recognition that his life is in us. The second is the last part of Matthew 25, verses 31 following. This is the day of judgment now. Some are set on the right hand and some on the left of Christ. 
And to those on the right hand, he says, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. He's commending. He noted what they did. And the real reason he noted it, of course, is because that was his life in them that was manifesting itself. And when they say to him, what? 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 When? when did we do that? His answer is, when you did it to one of the least of my brethren, I noticed. And the day of judgment, beloved, and even now in your own consciences, at the same time as we hear our Lord tell us that we are sinners, unworthy, and need His blood, but are covered by His blood, we also hear Him say, when we have truly shown charity, thou hast done well. You hear Him say that to you? By His Word and Spirit? And then, don't argue with Him. When He says, Beloved, you've done well. Oh yes, we will fall on our face and say, I haven't. I see. That is, I see all the imperfection. But when He says, But I saw my life in you, then say, Praise. God. Now we come back to verse 8 as it drives home the example, not with regard to commending now, but with regard to being fellow helpers to the truth. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Once again, as John did earlier, having dealt with specifics, You are walking in truth. John now sets it in the form of a general principle. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Gaius is a fellow helper to the truth. Now the general principle for the church of Jesus Christ. We, we all ought to receive such brethren who go forth preaching the gospel as well as strangers that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Are you known for that? As a congregation? And as individual members of the congregation? Are you known for your zeal for missions? The PRC does mission work. The PRC understands the need and the PRC has a zeal. It doesn't always appear to be as fervent a zeal as some other churches and Christians have. And that's a point to be remembered. So, do you have this zeal? Is the truth so precious to you? Is the saving of souls, lost souls, or the building up of souls converted now but needing building up so precious to you? The reason why you come to church today so precious to you that you would have brothers and sisters whom you don't even know in other places in the world hearing the gospel and although you're not called to preach it, you'll do what you can. Is that 
your zeal? Is that the zeal that drives the evangelism work of the congregation? We therefore ought to receive such. We ought to be like Him. We ought to follow His example. Now we do. We do begin. There too will be a commendation. We do begin. Maybe sometimes without thinking when He put our money in the collection plate. But that is a physical, tangible way in which we support our missionaries and the ministry of the gospel here. But what about our notes? This is a letter that John wrote to Gaius. What about our letters and notes of encouragement to the men who preach the gospel and the missionaries? Do we send them? What about the words we speak to our pastor? Do we say them? What about the prayers at the dinner table so that the whole family hears that this is a matter and then also in our own private individual prayers do we pray them do we have a zeal for the work of missions and if that zeal has waned then may the word of God in our text tonight encourage it and stir up the flame And then, again, do we have the same zeal for strangers? We don't know most of our brothers and sisters in Christ after all. Especially, we don't even know all of them in our own locality. But then in other countries. When you hear though, without knowing anything else about them, That so-and-so professes faith in the same Lord and Savior as you confess. Would you receive him or her into your fellowship? That's the example set forth for us this evening. And about that example, the text says, We therefore ought to receive such. That's the word to owe, as in, this is part of the debt we have. Owe no man anything but to love one another, Romans 13 verse 8. But this is that very debt, the debt of owing charity toward other brothers and sisters in Christ. And why do we owe this? Because there was a debt we could never pay. A debt to the justice of God. On account of our being unable to pay it, He sent His own Son into the flesh. And Jesus Christ paid that debt in our behalf by shedding His blood upon the cross. And now God says to you and to me, as He did to Israel redeemed from Egypt, now you do owe something You owe your body and your soul. You owe love forever. And this owing of love forever isn't a matter of trying to repay the debt of what Christ did for you on the cross. But this owing forever is a matter of showing how profoundly thankful you are for what He did. Are you thankful we owe, we ought to receive? Such. The gospel 
never stops at what we ought and must. The gospel goes on to say that what we ought and must do, we can do. And so that's the gospel that comes to us also this evening. It isn't just stir yourself up, somehow find the strength to do this, but that Jesus Christ who died for us on the cross and who shed His blood and satisfied the wrath of God now lives again. He rose, lives in our hearts, lives in us, and there's the power. There, what we ought to do becomes what we are able to do. Not in our own strength but in the power of Jesus Christ Himself and by His Holy Spirit. So that when we find ourselves weak in this respect, when we say, I'm not doing what I ought, or I'm not doing it enough, we go to Him in prayer and we seek His power and His strength and finding it, we have both the ought and then the can. And thirdly, the desire, the will, the renewed will of the child of God saying, I am so profoundly thankful for what God has done for me in Christ and the new man He has made me to be that I will. There is the gospel in the text. Take it to heart. May God make us all as a congregation as a denomination, but as families and individuals also, fellow helpers to the truth, because we love truth. Capital T truth. Jesus Christ, this much. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we ask thy blessing on us this evening and pray that the word that we heard might be might bear fruit in our lives. We're pointed again to the sufficiency of our Savior, not only to cover our sin so that He can say, well done, but also to work His life in us and cause us to bear fruit to the glory of Thy name so that again He can say, well done. But may He find us faithful also in regard to the work of missions and evangelism and our love for that cause and our willingness as Church of Jesus Christ to support the cause and those who labor in it. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.